Welcome to the Configure It Done podcast. The Configure It Done podcast is a place where successful thought leaders in the SAP space come to share their leadership styles, their tips, and their unique stories on how to run successful large-scale SAP programs. Listen to the podcast to learn from their successes, their failures, their career stories, and their inspirations. This podcast is in partnership with the Black Dog Institute, who aim to create a mentally healthier world for everyone. If you wish to support the cause, please donate via the link below. So before we start, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Daniel Cicerelli. He's, uh, he's a client of ours at Woolworths. He gave me a call yesterday. What He's been watching the podcast and listening to the podcast. And um, he gave us some really good feedback. So a massive shout out to Daniel. Thank you for that. I was on the phone for half an hour. So what we're going to do today, Pete, is something a bit different. Um, now, I know a lot of people in the SAP space know you. Um, but for those who d- uh, don't, we're going to do a quick fire question round. So there's 20 questions here and I'm going to set the timer and we've got three minutes to get through them so the audience can know who you are. All right. Any multiple choice. Multiple choice, mate. Multiple choice. You ready for this? Yes. All right. Cool. What's your full name? Peter David John Gilmer. What's your nickname? Peter G. Peter G. Love it. Is that from your DJ days, by the way? It is. Uh, where are you from? Dublin, Ireland. Can't, couldn't tell by the accent. Um, how long have you been in Australia? 21 years. Nice. Uh, where are you currently working, Pete? Line Australia. Uh, what's the best job you've ever had? You'll never guess. DJ. <laughs> and um, on the flip side, what's the worst job you've ever had? It's probably working for my dad. He was a bricklayer and uh, I'm far too soft to be laying bricks. Okay. And uh, favourite sport? Kite surfing and rugby union. That's a bit different, kite surfing. Might ask you a few questions about that later. Um, all right, favourite beer? Well, it obviously has to be a line beer. It's a Kosciuszko. Okay. What did you think of the Capital One that I uh, sent you the other day? Can't really say it's a competitor's beer, Jay. I can't <laughs> on, on public uh, mediums. <laughs> All right, we'll move on then. Um, favorite meal? Probably Spanish tapas or any kind of Indian dish. Basically, just loads of food. Coming from a family of eight <laughs> kids, uh, the more the merrier. Happy days. Um, all right, your number one tip in lockdown? Keep walking. How nice. many how many steps you get in a day, Pete? Trying to get at least 10,000. Um, I'm creeping up to about 12,000 on average a day at the moment. That's brilliant. That's good. Um, how do you keep yourself sane? Walk some more. <laughs> All right. This is a, like a work-related question. If you could describe your management style in one word, what would it be? Well, I'm going to use two words, but it's hyphenated. So hopefully that still falls in the line. Self-aware. Nice. like it. Um, your favorite music? I think favorite music. Well, I do a top 15 tunes every year. I've been doing it now for 10 years. Nick Blamey from Accenture got me onto it. So at the moment on my top 15, I'm just collating it. And then we distribute it to all our friends and, uh, you know, anybody's uh, kind of interested in, in pulling this together. So at the moment, I've got Ben Howard on, on replay. Ben Howard, nice. Okay. Best holiday destination? Um, probably since having kids, Noosa. Very nice. Very nice. Mm. That's one of your favourites, Simon, as well, isn't it? Um, all right. Bucket list thing to do. Kite surf the Maldives or Maldives, depending on your uh, your accent. Okay. Favourite city? Paris. Nice. Okay. Romantic. Very mm. romantic. I am a romantic sort of individual. <laughs> Not by my wife, of course. All right. If you weren't in SAP, what would you do? I'm guessing it's not bricklaying. No, I mean, I've got into a little bit of uh, residential uh, project management development, which I've been really enjoying. But um, I have to say my dream job would be probably picking music for films and TV, you know. So coming up with what's the music score for for various films and TV, I think that'd be an amazing job. You've thought about this, haven't you? I really have. (coughs) All right. And then lastly, I'm going to put this question to you as well after Peter, but a fun fact about yourself. Uh. I was actually voted the 26th best DJ in Ireland by Hot Press in the year 2000. Now, Hot Press is like Ireland's Rolling Stone magazine. Now, what it didn't actually say was there actually was only 30 DJs in Ireland at the time. 
but that's besides the point. The point is, I made it to 26, and I will always hold that dear to me. God, side, so you're you're go. What's a, tell us a fun fact about yourself? Um, I got offered auditions for Biker Grove not once but twice and turned them down. So, you know, if I wasn't uh, a recruiter, maybe I'd be on TV or I could be the other, you know, part of Anton Deck or something like that. For those of uh, for those Australians that don't know what the Grove is, what is it? Biker Grove is this amazing TV show that is really popular in the UK, and um, I mean it's millions of watchers every week. And uh, yeah, they wanted me to be on it. They came to my school. I was I was pulled out of the classroom twice by the drama teacher and told to go for auditions. And I said, no way, that's not for me. I'd rather focus on being an SAP recruiter. So here I am. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that All show right. has actually been decommissioned, Simon, and you're still going. So um, you made the right there choice. You there you go. And uh, you know what? When I go on holiday in places like that, you go to Spain and stuff when you were younger, the amount of times I'd get asked because of the accent. You look like Ant or Deck. I don't know which one. Like, I'd always get that as well. It's pretty annoying. And then I'd always tell this story like a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get an SAP? Tell us, because it's a good story and um, I do like it. Uh, so look, yeah, no, so I had a degree in, in HR accounting and, and I worked at um, Intel Ireland for about a year doing internal recruitment. I then left Australia about 24, I'm 46 now, took a year off and did a whole lot of traveling, but uh, landed up working in command recruitment in Australia and I did that for about three years. But I knew I wanted to get into IT. Um, so I started working as a, as a BA, very junior BA in a very small software company that developing recruitment software. Um, I knew I wanted to get into the bigger projects, uh, but I needed to start somewhere. And it was hilarious. I must have sent my CV off to, I'd say, about 100 different opportunities. And it was, you know, 99 rejections. Um, most people laughed at the fact that I was trying to get into major IT projects with, uh, you know, one year IT software experience. But I did get lucky. Um, Westpac were replacing its, its SAP R3 payroll with Oracle and they needed a junior BA to do data cleansing. I have to tell you, it was one of the most joyous moments of my life. I couldn't believe it. A junior BA data analyst. I mean, I thought I had it made. I did know what it meant. It meant a foothold into that that world. But um, my God, it was one of the, um, I guess, uh, it was a real hell of an introduction, to say uh, say the least, into major software implementations, big implementation at Westpac. Um, and just an exercise of perseverance. I was completely in over my head. My actual uh, leader was was probably the Meryl Streep uh, of BAs. I mean, she was amazing, and I was really a two-bit TV actor from uh, Bikey Grove. Um, <laughs> and, and look, she wasn't the mentoring type either, so it was absolute hell. But look, I stayed the course. I spent three years there, which is great, and then I got an opportunity to work at Corporate Express um, with Richard Akel, who you've had obviously on Configure It Done, and um, you know, as part of his major SAP program. You know, that was a big break because Richard really mentored me as a project manager. He was a, a brilliant leader, absolutely fantastic leader, but just just really terrible in football, lads. I mean, always <laughs> wanted to be up front scoring goals, never liked to do any of the hard work, which is why it was useful that I was there at Corporate Express to do all his dirty work for him. But um, um go on, keep going. I was gonna I was gonna ask you about Richard before you finished. Like what what was I know you're a big fan of Richard, but what what did he teach you most? Yeah, um, I don't think it was necessarily just rich. I think it was probably it's it's every good leader and every bad leader and sort of team members and everybody's teaching you constantly, aren't they? But um, I think with Richard and a bit like all the, the the really good leads I've ever worked for, you know, that the one thing that stands out is, I mean, really these individuals care so much about what they do. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, their own customers are probably giving them a harder time than than um, than they probably deserve. And yet, the, the commitment shown from these individuals and these leaders is just is is um, is just beyond believable. I mean, they're they're just really committed to delivering. Just they're passionate for for the detail as well. Richard was unbelievable at the detail. You know, he knew every sort of um inch of what was going on across a very large program and look i've tried to hold that through to what i do and it's important uh the devil really is in the detail so yeah i think that's probably the stand there from richard is just just his care factor he really felt responsible for what he was doing yeah i agree he's, he's a very good uh operator um mm -hmm. 
And you were lucky to work with him so young and at the beginning of your career, really, in, in the SAP world there. I was, I was. And, you know, he underplayed the SAP program uh, a little bit at Corporate Express. I mean, that won best best run program, best run project that year. Um, and I, I think he touched on it a little bit. And it's something um, I'm going to talk about later on is, is just that business engagement. Um, it was really, really well done at Corporate Express. And it was great to see the business actually take over huge components of the program. And I think that was the critis- critical success as to why that program was so successful. But Richard was the one that made that charge. Uh, I think when I met him at Corporate Express too, you know, he he was probably not unlike where I am now. He had a couple of big projects under his belt and he brought all that experience and it was great to see that in action. Peter, how did you get that job at Corporate Express out of interest? <laughs> uh, oh, look, I don't, I actually can't remember to be honest with you. I think um, it was through applying for a role through um, a company called... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm only playing. But- so look, I then went on to work at uh, Presence of IT at Georgia and Foods, and then I worked at the infamous um, LMBR Department of Education as a program manager, uh, working for Presence, but under the Accenture uh, banner, worked for Nick Blamey. I was there for about three and a half years, and anybody who knows uh, the SAP space will know that that was really the Vietnam of SAP project management. I mean, it was just a rodeo with inside a rodeo. I don't think anybody or any project has ever scared me or will scare me again like LMBR. But again, exercise and perseverance. I was there for three and a half years and um, it was great. A lot of lessons learned. I then got another gig to another company called Precision, I think they're called, um, <laughs> at CBA randomly as an infrastructure project manager, portfolio manager. Uh, I was literally, again, nodding my head in meetings. I didn't have a clue what was going on. I was Googling at night, what does high availability, high availability mean? And what does uh, SQL clustering mean? Um, brilliant role all the same. I did really well. I really enjoyed it. And then, look, I went into government then for about four years as a program director, just doing a whole heap of um, different projects, including Salesforce at Revenue Set Wales. And now I've been at line for the past three and a half years, rolling out S4. In fact, I've just finished upgrading S4 to version 2020. We went live last week. Successfully? Successfully, yeah, no um, no P1s, no P2s. Um, it all went very, very well. Well, I think we're one of the first customers globally to go to S4 version 2020. So it's really exciting because it's quite a large SAP platform and scope. Um, you know, we've got Concur, EAM, um, Hybris, uh, CRM. So a lot of applications that um, obviously integrate with S4. So to do that upgrade to version 2020 off the back of a major three-year implementation was really good. Did you do that, obviously, remotely, working remotely, yeah, and in lockdown? Working remotely, but I think because we'd spent, you know, three and a half years or four years doing the initial implementation, um, and it really was the same team that then transitioned onto the upgrade, we we just really hit our straps um, from having to do basically a large program virtually. So when COVID hit in March, um, you know, in 2000, God, is it 2020? Wow. we were just about to start system integration testing in UAT for that major program, but we did it all virtually. And God, I can imagine back then, you know, my style of project management is all about interacting. And uh, I thought we were going to find it really hard, but it actually worked out really well. Teams has been fantastic for us. Yeah, I like Teams. Probably leads us into uh, another good question here. You mentioned that program was was successful, um, Peter, but. What is a successful program for you? Like, what's your view and, and how has that changed over time? Yeah, look, I mean, there's all sorts of definitions on, on, on what a successful program is. You know, I mean, at the heart of it, it has to be about benefits of the new ways of working, you know, the systems, the processes, um, but just ultimately as well, just that core technology resilience. But, you know, when I when I read this question, immediately in my mind, uh, went to, well, why are some SAP programs more successful and enjoyable for me? And, and I think government coming from four years or nearly six years, actually, now that I think about it with Department of Education, six years in government and um, six years in, in private, um, company culture, it's really interesting to see the difference between uh, government and private. Um, I mean, before joining Lion, my best experience was at Corporate Express with Richard. Um, but I think Lion actually trumps it, but it's a th- similar theme and it's about that business engagement. So look, I mean, the software is a software, you know, it runs some of the world's biggest companies. It is a complicated software, of course it is. I mean, it's not like 
Salesforce, which is just brilliant at, and I'm going to get shot down for this at some point by some propeller head, but it's brilliant at what it does in that CRM space. And I know it's trying to widen its its scope, but SAP does runs a business end to end. It just doesn't do payroll or customer relationship management, does it all. But I think what makes SAP really difficult to implement is people. And Lime's culture is really suited to SAP programs. I mean, within all levels, when problems did occur, and they do occur with SAP, of course they do, the focus was always on moving forward. Decisions were made really quickly. Um, they seconded some of the senior leaders in from the business who had enormous respect, and they were given the delegation to make decisions. And you're like, SAP programs, is, it's debt by a thousand cuts. You're constantly having to make decisions on the ground every single day. And those decisions could really um, derail a program, could delay it, cost an awful lot of money, lose motivation, momentum. But like Lion had really, really strong um, values that were communicated regularly. And we continue to refer to them. I'll give you some examples. Um, you know, act fast was one of their was one of their values. Be brave, and we kept referring to those values within the program. Um, and they were really helpful when things were getting, I guess, um, complicated, and we wanted to, to to kind of move ahead. So instead of saying, "Oh, we'll take this offline," I was like, "No, we're here. We're in this meeting. Let's make these decisions. Let's move forward." You know, I do think the private sector, though, the benefit is they can incentivize financially its leaders. You know, these roles within um, SAP programs within government, there's only a lot of stick that you can use within government, you know, and influencing to some degree, um, which is why it's so hard to do SAP programs within government. Whereas private, you know, line, they were very clever. They obviously had leadership bonuses linked to the success of the program. So there was a massive incentive, not just to change, but also to deliver the program because motivation for supporting the program was a financial reward at the end of it. So I think that was probably one of the key success factors. And the last thing it's done at line, which I think has been really smart, is after they went live, they actually set up a new program and they funded it for 12 months and was called a stabilization program. So a lot of times what you'll find is these companies will do this big SAP invitation to build this really refined system, this huge engine, and then I hand it over to support after a two-month hypercare. But the real work actually starts after you've gone live. You really need to stabilize the solution and start really making sure you're getting the benefits out of it. So Line recognized that. They actually set up a whole program just to get that solution completely stabilized, but also start thinking about how to develop CI, how to develop <laughs> continuously improving that platform. And I think they've seen the success of it, but they had to pay the money for it. Yeah. But I think in doing it, investing in that stabilization program, they're seeing huge benefits now. All right. Peter, what about stakeholders? Do you think stakeholders are more challenging in government or private? Um, again, as I mentioned, and I, I hate to put it down to brass tactics, but, but I think in private, when the program has been incentivized or those leaders been incentivized, where they've got performance goals that include delivering that program, you are getting a better um, interaction with that stakeholder. But, you know, I've met some great people in private and great people in uh, stakeholders in government. Um, I just think there is still a lot of red tape in government. And of course there is, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, there's a need for policy. Um, it's representing the public. It's taxpayers' money. There's a whole lot of layers and nuances. But I do think um, stakeholders in private, as I mentioned, you know, the, the, there is an easier way, I guess, or an easier path to kind of getting through um, difficult conversations. Yeah. Sure. And um, just to give people some context, Peter, how, how big was that program at Lion, um, like budget-wise and the team? And um, and then secondly, the the SI, how did you manage how did you manage them as well on that program? Uh, so the program, um, maybe 300 million was the probably size of the program. Um, it was Accenture that were leading it. I have to say, uh, this is maybe my second major program working with Accenture, um, not working for Accenture, but working alongside them. Uh, I did it at uh, LMBR and, you know, they're fantastic as an organization. I mean, it's very hard when you're trying to stand up a program and you're trying to deliver something in a sort of two year period that needs 300 consultants. There's only a few really big companies you can go for, you know, your Deloitte, your PwCs, your Ernst Young's, your Accenture, et cetera. Decision I, I sourcing. Huh? Decision sourcing. <laughs> Decision sourcing, of course. Yes, sorry, precisive as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, 
Yeah, no, I think they were great to work with. But uh, again, Lions Culture wasn't about beating up the vendor. It was about partnering. I know that's a, um, a platitude that a lot of SAP, I guess, program project managers will use around partnering. Um, and at times, sometimes that falls down when things get really difficult. But uh, again, I think Lions Culture, I keep going on about it, was suited to, to, to working with a partner. You know, they weren't looking for blame. It was about solution um, solving and moving on. So I think... I think Lions Culture <laughs> suited that vendor relationship. Yeah, there's a couple of clients who are good at that, that partnering. Where it's not a them and us. Like Sydney Water are really good at it. Woolies are really good at it, in my experience. Any others, Jay, you've come across that are really good at that partnering rather than kind of... Um, yeah, Coca-Cola, they're, they're, they're very good at it as well. Um, it just it, Those companies just treat the partners like their own. Um, and it's like you're all in it together. I remember, a, um, I remember an event that we did with Sahida... Um, Sapa Pillai and Clive Ewan and it was on that very topic about um, basically how their software provider in terms of SAP and Sahida was there, with Veolia in terms of the customer with Sapa Pillai and then Clive Ewan with IBM and how basically they they work together and um, yeah it's just one, one goal and they kind of broke down those barriers so um, yeah a couple of organizations have, have done that really well. So Peter you're a, um, if if I was going to work for a project manager I think I'd like to work for you. I think I like your style. If I was to ask you for the viewers to describe your project management methodology, how would you define it? Well, I'd just start off and just recognize the lovely compliments, Simon. That's that's a very nice uh, launches <laughs> on me next time, I'd imagine then. Um, look, I think SAP programs, I mean, they're notoriously difficult and they're, they're ultimately very complex. You know, it's a once in a lifetime overhaul really of, all your business operating processes and systems, it's always going to be really intense. Um, and there's going to be lots of really challenging times, you know, difficult conversations. There's always a volume of issues that at times will completely overwhelm you, many long hours. So I think you as a leader, you know, you need to actually actually have complete and absolute resilience and drive. Um, I mean, I'd actually sell my mother to hit a milestone or a go live. I'm careful not to say my wife there uh, in case she's listening to this podcast. But, you know, I'm, I know I'm not alone there. I think that's the case for really seasoned operators and not just project managers. It's functional consultants. It's it's people who have been around SP for a long time. You need to have that that drive. Whether it's a good thing or bad thing is questionable, but it's par for the course. You know, you might be finding yourself working on a million a week program with massive disruption to the business. So I think you need to be really single in your focus. Um, but not at the behest of quality. That's what project governance is for. But look, you know, I'm not a, a cyclist. I want to tell you a little story here. I much prefer the the water, um, but I enjoy watching the Tour de France. I just think those cyclists yeah. are just absolutely mad. But about 10 years ago, I went over to see my brother do a stage of the Tour de France. It's called Le Tap de Jour, so a stage for the day. And they run it each year, and it's actually for passionate amateur cyclists who want to have a real um, go at, at a stage of the Tour de France. To be honest, as you're looking up the Pyrenees, it just it just completely confirmed my view. These sort of cyclists, they're absolutely mad. Like it's just one sheer climb. But I noticed at the start of the line that they had um, a whole heap of buses and just one car with a really large digital clock mounted on top. And I asked the brother, I said, what's the clock for? And he explained that the car would eventually follow the riders and continuously behind the riders at a certain speed. So the car caught up with you. You had to stop the race, get on one of the buses behind the car. So we drove to the finish line. My brother finished it. Very proud of him. Amazing achievement. But a few hours later, the car with the large digital clock came in and behind it, five buses, big buses full of the most despondent individuals I've ever seen in my face. I mean, the pain in their face is heartbreaking. And there were stories of riders falling, gear breakdown, too much physical pain. But... You know, the funny thing is these cyclists will go back up and do it again. Their, their focus is absolutely singular, and it has to be. I mean, 100K in, their legs are burned, a relentless climb, and, and the only sustenance they have really to keep going is just resilience and drive. And to be honest with you, I think I've had quite a few of those moments in SAP delivery where I've had to really dig deep, and the teams have to re dig really deep. But, I mean, it's just an unbelievable feeling when you get there as a team. Um, but to answer your question, that resilience and drive is hugely important. 
And it's funny because that's exactly how I feel after finishing one of these big programs. I mean, I'm still friends with Richard. I'm still friends with Nick Blamey. Um, still really good friends with, with John Golf and that line. Like, and you know, it's 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 you've been in the trenches together. You've you've gone through those really intense um, moments where you know the stress is just unbelievable. But you get through at the other ends, you know. And it's it's really bonding. I I I agree. And look on the people side, you know. I think 20 years ago when I started these type of projects, um, you know, well-being was the lowest priority in any project. And I mean, it was great to hear Alex um, from SAP talking about um, how SAP is really driving well-being. And same with Lion. I mean, I remember working at Westpac and my lead at the time, would you believe, 20 years ago, she verbally noted to me my continuing use of please and thank you like it was a bad thing, like a time waster. You know, on it. Honestly, it was it was like that when you when you in those projects twenty years ago. It was really cutthroat. It was just it was horribly intense and and um, you know, well being was very much the lowest priority. It was just working guts off and until you collapse, really, you know, which isn't healthy. Um, and look, I I think my role as a project manager and program manager, whatever you know, is to protect really the team from the noise, so ultimately they can get on with the real work of delivery. Um, I think I think you need to connect with everyone you at least try to connect with everyone you work with. I mean, your role really is is as a servant to some to some uh, respect. Um, and I think in doing that role, you, you sort of want to build connection with your team members. You know, just be curious about them as individuals. And I think the one thing I'm getting better and better at as I get older is is being really careful how I engage. You know, sensitive, choosing my words. Um, and it's 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 not a skill; it's an ongoing development for me. Um, and I'm not I'm not talking about tiptoeing around different conversations, but look, you know, I've got two kids. Um, we've had to face really tough issues uh, for years over all sorts of different parts of your life, really. You know, so at the end of the day, I think it's it's treating everyone who you interact with with absolute respect. And I think if you do that well and you build that connection and you're curious and you go the extra mile for them, you know, they'll back you when when you need them to back you and they'll support you. But the one thing I can't stand that I'm really um, specific on drilling out is negativity. I mean, I root that out as quickly as possible because there's always going to be problems. I mean, SAP is just one big problem when you're implementing. But as a project team with a negative voice, you can kill the team. So, you know, you think about that rider going up the Pyrenees and, you know, they're on the 100 kilometer um, into the race and their legs are burning, but they got that negative voice in the ear. It's just, you know, it's, it's not the right, right voice, you know. Peter, I'll tell you, during when COVID happened in March 2020 and we moved to a four-day week of precision, cut some cost, and I remember the team telling the team that was one of the worst, most challenging days of my career. And I remember telling the team that on a team's call like this. And obviously everybody was fearful and scared. I remember one of the questions was, what have we got to do to keep our jobs? And I said, there's two things you've got to do. Number one, do exactly what you say you're going to do every day make sure we do it and number two keep a positive attitude because that's the only thing that's going to get us through it really like nobody wants to be coming into work every day other than sitting in front of or on teams calls working with people who are just miserable and kind of pulling you down you need that kind of positive attitude and you're, you're exactly right but Pete, i want to go back to another point you talked about like the, the vibe i'm getting from you is that the difference between great operators like yourself and richard arkell and Nick Blaney, is that they sell the granny to deliver, all right, and I get that, and it's all about getting it over the line, and I understand that. So how do you kind of, in the modern world, tackle that focus on health and well-being with your team when, you know, you have got, I've got to drive and get this over the line, but you've got a different workforce now to maybe 20 years ago and a, a different leadership style required? How do you tackle that? I think it's really about, you know, building that connection with with individuals in your team. Yeah. Um, and I think in building high-performing teams, you know, you can't be removed from it. I mean, I've worked for leaders that that feel like they need to be removed from the team and, and need to have this kind of um, austere, kind of distant relationship. Um, I, I don't agree with that. Yeah, I'm all, I've worked uh, with people like that. Yeah, I've been told that I get too close to my team as well. I, I get that, yeah. I mean, I, I, look, there's no right or wrong, right? I mean, you know, getting close to your team has probably got its, its own um, downfalls too, but I think that's probably my my approach is that you get as close to the team as possible and you know i talked about my style of management being self-aware and i think you have to be self-aware around the team you've got to understand um 
really what's the tone you know how's how is everybody sort of feeling at very points in the team i mean generally speaking the individuals i work with you know that there will be experienced people who've worked on sb projects but as i mentioned you know we've got all sorts of problems that happen in our in our in our daily lives outside of work and i think bringing that human sort of element to your interaction and making sure that you're respectful but also you know being aware that maybe people have off days, there might be reasons outside of what you're doing and allowing for that. Um, you know, it's not a pattern. Um, checking in on people, you know, maybe they're not they're not as honest with you up front. So maybe you just sort of watch them and just wait for an opportune moment where you can talk to them again about, you know, uh, how they find in the work. Is everything OK? So. You know, it's, I think it's that staying close to what's going on amongst the team. Um, but you're right. It's always a conflict for me where, you know, there's times where it's just this pressure. And unfortunately, um, you need to drive probably harder than you'd like, uh, knowing potentially that people are probably at, on their last legs. But you know that that last push is going to get you over the line and, and there's probably a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so you're so talking about him. Empathy, Peter, as well, aren't you? Really, you're, you're a very empathetic person. But I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a compliment here. I tell you what, you you're very good at, and I think people take this for granted, and not a lot of people are good at it. You're a great listener. If I think about the amount of times we catch up, or we'll meet for a beer or a coffee, or whatever, you always go back and you remember certain things about I don't know my family, or I talk about my mom or whatever, my wife, and you you come back to conversations all the time that you remember. So you, I think you've got a great memory. And you're a great listener and it sounds like empathetic and that skill set those things like a lot of people don't have it and that's why you, you'd be a great people person and leader and why you are yeah? uh no Simon, i really appreciate you know what you said there that that's lovely to hear um it really is it's a lovely compliment but i i do think it comes back to you as a leader unless you can build that connection with the team you know and the only way to build a connection with the team is to be curious about them as individuals and the only way you can be curious about them as individuals is actually listen um i'm not always brilliant at it um but i'm, I'm getting better as i get older i think um about just trying to find that balance between you know knowing there's a deadline but also taking the time out just to kind of have a good chat with somebody about things outside of work um and i think when you do that you build that connection because you know you're you're sharing, um, I guess, an interest in each other's life. So, um, you know, it humanizes what you do in terms of how you work and operate together. And I think that's really important because it's just software. We're implementing software. We're doing it, you know, eight hours a day together for, you know, five days a week. So, you know, how can you just be operating in that amount of time without humanizing that experience? Would you, you call, like, you, you strike me as a, a curious person, um, Peter, but would you, would you call yourself a, a curious person or do you think that's developed developed over time in, in leadership? Uh, it's a good question. Um, yeah, it's a very good question. I don't know. May, maybe it is from watching people like Richard or watching people like um, Nick. Um, you know, they're, they're very similar to me, very empathetic um, leaders, curious leaders. You know, my God, they would they they could turn quite quickly if uh, things weren't going well, and and remind you of your responsibility to deliver. But at the same time, they gave you the space to, to you know to have I guess off days or you know conversations or comments that hadn't gone well. So yeah, maybe it might have been from watching these leaders. Um, you know, maybe that's how it's developed. It's a good question. Or are you the type of person, Richard, who goes on holiday or goes to the pub? by yourself and you end up just talking to strangers like my wife goes mad because we'll go on holiday and I'll hardly speak to her and, <laughs> and I've <laughs> met an anaesthetist I've met a heart surgeon I've met somebody else and she's like can you just speak to your family when you're on holiday rather than just speaking to these strangers my wife now before I go on holidays says to me you're on holidays with your family you've been working you know for the last god knows how long very hard you're with us because she already knows I, I'll, I'll spend the half the night talking to the waiter or the waitress so that answers the question. So you are born like that, then? Eh? That's not. You haven't developed that trait to be curious. You're just born curious, and it's in your DNA. And obviously, you're just interested in people. Yeah. So, like me. <laughs> All right, Pete. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna move this on and ask you to get really vulnerable, vulnerable now, if you don't mind. Um, but what would you describe as your your biggest failure? And 
on the flip side, what did you what did you learn from that? Um, I think I'm constantly failing. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't <laughs> think I've ever had one big failure. Um, I've made a million mistakes, continue to do so. Um, I've kind of learned over the years to hone in on what I'm weak on. And I'm always looking for feedback from, from uh, folks I work with that I respect. Um, I think where most of my failings is how I communicate, you know, the wrong choice of words. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a really good example. A recent one, I was I was in a meeting with uh, my training lead for the program, and he was anxious because there was a whole bunch of work to do in training, um, but the system just wasn't ready. So, you know, I I I without thinking said to him, "Listen, our focus is completely on the system build. You know, it's the most important, and development of training material wasn't a focus for us right now." Yeah, and look, while that was completely true, you know, I could see in his face he was absolutely gutted. You know, where was my support? You know, I could have said it differently. I could have said, look, the minute the system's built, we'll throw in all our weight behind training. So, look, I think language um, is massive and it's it's a failing I continue to focus on because, um, you know, it's 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 really important when you're delivering these big programs, how you communicate. Because, uh, again, you're working with people, as I kept saying, software is a software. It's 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 yeah. it does what it's meant to do. It's it's all about the people interaction. And that goes the same for stakeholders. It goes the same for anybody you work with. Communication is massive it's undervalued isn't it and i think you, you don't go to school and learn how to communicate do you, you don't like learn how to kind of it's, it's not a skill set that you do a course on and stuff is it for part of your project management or your prints i'm guessing it's uh no but it's no. vital isn't it and that self-awareness i think again the self-awareness you know it, it really helps because when you're interacting you know i, I could have walked away from that conversation and, and not noticed the fact that um you know he was he was pretty frustrated and annoyed at my comments um and it would have been more difficult for me to continue to work with him in, in different areas i mean obviously you know people are gonna have thick skin on these programs but you know i was able to catch them later and apologize and say look you know we absolutely want to support you and of course that changed his whole perspective on the day really that he then felt like i'd, I'd heard him and you know he was gonna smash out what he needs to smash out and perform where he needed before i'm not worrying about you know the fact that i haven't got his back how how well does a sincere apology go down with people when you're leading teams and whatnot? Oh, huge. Absolutely huge. And talking about communication, and maybe this touches back on the whole project delivery methodology in my style. You know, the best thing I think that's happened uh, really um, in terms of my delivery approach is agile. Like it just it's just the best style. You know, I can't tell you how many times I found myself in meetings where I have absolutely zero understanding of what's been discussed. It's so technical, but you can always hear miscommunication. You can always hear where assumptions are being made, commitments to follow through and an action's missed or accountability not to find it. And that's the stuff that absolutely kills delivery, miscommunication, lack of clarity, assumptions, no ownership, you know, no follow through. It can literally cost millions. So look, I think the understanding of of, of the detail, it, it, it absolutely counts. And the follow through on commitments is, is the actual goal and delivery. So when I started in SAP, I came from that very traditional waterfall project management. You know, you meet with the customer, you document the requirements, we do a big solution. Uh, we then go off and disappear and build it and then come back up for like a couple of months of testing and we go live. The beauty about Agile, and it's something that um, we're really trying to focus in online at the moment, and they're, they're doing a fantastic job is it's just focused on continuous delivery. And it's the biggest challenge for SAP, I think, because SAP is a naturally a system that's suited to Agile. It's it's a it's a big old clunky system in a lot of ways. Um, and it's, I mean, obviously it's cloud solutions now are, are focused around being able to do continuous delivery, but at its core S4, it's a complicated system. Whereas Agile, I think allows for more continuous delivery S4 is saying, hey, we need you to slow down here you're delivering because there's so many parts in the system that you've got to get right before you start delivering every two weeks. And that's what I mean about continuous delivery. With Agile, at the end of a two-week sprint or even four weeks, you're delivering an improvement into the system. You know, you're not waiting 12 months after you've got the requirements of the customer, you've built it, you're testing it, you're releasing. And, and the wonderful thing about Agile too, just touching back on communication is, you're actually meeting as a team daily. You know, it's a quick catch up, 20 minutes, and it has the business in that meeting too. And it touches back on, 
you know, one of the failings I think I see in, in SAP projects is that lack of business engagement. With Agile, you've got the business lead in that team. They're part of that team. They're meeting daily. Yeah. So, you know, you're looking through progress, you're looking at requirements, you're resolving blockers with the business directly. And the other good thing about Agile is you're actually playing back at the end of what you delivered, um, what you built. So, you know, it's it's a showcase of, hey, we've spent the last four weeks building this. Let's play it back to the business, get the buy-in. And, and people are very visual. You know, it's hard to conceptualize what you want. Agile, I think, supports that showcasing of, hey, you've asked us to build something. We've been able to do it in a, in a four-week sprint or two-week sprint. Here, business, this is what we've done. What do you think? So, you know, you're not waiting for that one, two-year project that's gone through that design, build, and test before you see the end result. You're seeing it immediately. So, I think, you know, it's one of the challenges for how um, Line is going to operate with S4 being a system that doesn't necessarily allow for agile delivery, how we can actually start to build agile around. I won't say system constraints because SAP is trying to think improve its ability to be, um, uh, how do I say it, more expedient in, in how it, how, uh, how we can deliver improvements in its software. Do you see, um, do you see a big difference on site versus remote with that, with that approach, Pete? Uh, look, I, I, it's, I'm, I would be nervous about kicking off Agile um, again uh, in a new company uh, where I don't know all the players because um, I do think that face-to-face -face connection is really important in Agile. I, I do think if I wasn't doing Agile and I was working remotely and I was relying on Waterfall, I think Waterfall would be even harder because, you know, you're not doing those. Well, you can, of course, in Waterfall um, where you do your design, build, and test, and then you go live. You know, you could have your daily status, but I think the interaction with Agile is far more frequent. It's far more pointed. It's far more collaborative and transparent. So I think if I was to do a remote project again in SAP, I think Agile is definitely the right uh, methodology. But I, I have to say I, I am nervous about starting a new a new program remotely. I think there's a lot of challenges trying to build a performance high performance team virtually. Okay, I don't have the answers for that because, as I said to you, I've been lucky working at Line. Uh, we've been working together for for a long period of time, so I think we've gotten um, into a very good mode. Yeah. Yeah. Because okay. sure. you've come okay. from a strong start type of thing. Correct. That's right. You come from a strong start. Yeah. We'd already worked together for about two and a half years on site before we went remote. Sure. If you okay. if you got a new job, SAP project director at a new company, and they said you can run this program with people working from home or on site, what would you or hybrid model? What would be your approach? A hybrid. Hybrid for sure. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think work from home has been a godsend um, in a lot of ways for me personally. I've got two young kids. You know that travel time is 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 massive. Um, just being able to put a, a load of washing on—that's uh, my my wife's uh, love language. Um, you know that. <laughs> that's you start playing the guitar again, haven't you? <laughs> Started playing the guitar again. Uh, you know, not during meetings, thankfully. Not yet, anyway. Um, no, look, I think I think um, the work from home it's a it's a really lovely balance, but I do I do miss that face to face in the office. Who's been the biggest influence on your career, and what did they teach you in particular? Uh, I think as as I said earlier on, I think I've had some great leaders, but I've also had some terrible leaders too, and they've been equally a massive influence on me. You know, not how I how I don't want to be as a leader. Um, I think. Do you want to, do you want to mention them? Um, no, <laughs> uh, no negativity, kick it out. <laughs> but, but I do remember one of the most important lines as a project manager quotes that have ever been given to me. And it was from my CFO at Corporate Express. And he pulled me aside and he said, listen, Peter, remember this. If the project goes well, it's because of the, of the team. But if it doesn't go well, it's completely your fault. Yeah, so true. That so is so true. And, yeah. and, you know, I think I think. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. It's a lonely old place at times, um, you know, yeah, being the leader, it can be. But um, I think that's where uh, you need to keep that line close to you. You know, it, <laughs> ultimately responsibility falls on you. So, um, yeah, no, look, in terms of what they teach me, um, you know, I think that's the thing is is th they all owned what they did um, and you need to as a leader.
Yeah. You, you probably already answered this question with that that quote. I love that quote, by the way. Um, but what would you tell your 21 year old self, Peter? Yeah, I heard you ask this question a few, a few times. I, I could think of 21. I think get out there and enjoy yourself. You know, don't, don't worry about your career. Be utterly curious. Get as many experience into you as you can. And then when you do start working, you know, as, as Richard Branson said, if, if you're offered a role you've got no experience in, you know, take it, learn quickly and um you know if you don't achieve you don't achieve but um you know don't don't do a role that that you think you, you can do do a role that you think is going to be really difficult because it's it's only then that when you really learn um difficult is good it's taken me a while to realize that that you know times in these big sap projects when i've just gone wow I, i'm just in over my head you know it, it means now that when i'm doing these sort of programs i don't feel as overwhelmed because i've grown from those experiences Good answer. Yeah, so Peter, obviously you've been in the industry uh, 20 years now, but what, what keeps you in the um, the SAP domain? Yeah, so I was listening to Nick um, Safris, I think, uh, um, on one of your podcasts, and, and, you know, he said it really well. He talked about just the brilliant exposure you get to all these different types of organizations. I mean, each time you start a new SAP program, it's like you're visiting a whole new country and and staying there for a while, you know, whether it's working at Westpac and CBA to Department of Education to Revenue Set Wales and now at Line, like all completely different cultures and operating rhythms and processes and politics. And, you know, secondly, th these sort of programs, they come around one, once every 20 or 30 years for most organizations and requires massive commitment, um, especially in regards to time and, and just and money. So. You know, we know these major mutations, they have the potential to bring down an entire business, you know, even an entire department. Um, you only have to look at what happened at Queensland Health and the payroll implementation, where the fallout from that failing was so far reaching. So I think there's a real gravitas to doing these programs. They kind of feel monumentous and and, and never banal. Um, and I think, and, and, and to sort of wrap up the answer to the question, I think, you know, the, the SAP domain, it, it demands experience and skill set and i think being a specialist there's nothing better it's, it's akin to having a passion you know um you get to continue to refine your skill set learn bring that experience and skill set you know into your next customer and and that's what your customers are paying for so you know there's a significant dependency in you to bring that skill set and that experience so look how many roles do you know that are dependent on your ability to kind of lead a business through once or twice um twice in a lifetime and evolution like there aren't too many roles that that um that that facilitate or allow you to to do that and talking about different roles you've been program director you've been a consultant you've been a ba what if you look back what would you say is the most enjoyable time of your is your of your career because obviously as you move up you get more responsibility more pressure um just coming back to that um, cfo quote um that you mentioned earlier like if it goes wrong it's on your head ultimately um and if you was a, like a consultant it's not so like what would you say is the most enjoyable part of your of your career um i'd probably say the current role i'm in at the moment um again it just feels like um what we've done was was was, was monumentous it was you know a, a very difficult complex program a lot of sap scope um major implementation but but I just got to work with just these amazing individuals. I mean, that they're at the, the best of the best, um, really seasoned operators and, and being around it, surrounded by those individuals, you can't help but feel inspired um, and to watch them at their best and, and, and operate at a level and, and skill that you, you know, you just have to stand back and admire um, and, and, and just be really thankful that you're, you're surrounded with such, such incredible people. Nice one. And um, who else would you like to see on this podcast? I think I think John Golfman would be fantastic. Um, he he was really instrumental in driving what is a very very complex program at Line, um, and he's a he's a really interesting background in, in his in his philanthropy, which is just amazing from some experiences. But I'd also like to hear from you know just a CIO or or senior leader from state government or federal particularly with what's happening in government at the moment um, where the driving th towards really that that uh, unified uh, SAP platform particularly in New South Wales but you know after working in government for a few years delivering SAP programs at scale in government is just so complex and I, <laughs> I just wonder at times going back to that carrot and stick 
how can government um, you know, learn from, I guess, that cultural aspect that happens at private organization that allows these programs to move forward? And not just cultural values I talked about, like acting fast and being brave in decisions, but rewarding individuals um, to drive these programs, because I do think that's the secret ingredient that maybe government could really do it um, in being able to deliver these really, really vast SAP programs. Okay. Well, if you when you talk about rewards, I don't know if you've read a book by a guy called Dan Pink. It's called Drive, and he the book's all about how people are driven, and he, he talks about this study in the 1940s where they've got these monkeys, and these monkeys are caged, and they'll happily do um, solve puzzles all day and they solve the puzzles, and then they introduce rewards via raisins. So every time they solve a puzzle, they'll give them some raisins and all hell breaks loose with these monkeys and they start um, fighting and they're not solving the puzzles anymore. They're kind of attacking each other and fighting for the raisins and all gone, gone ape, as they say. Um, so that's interesting because what that would indicate is that actually financial rewards can get you into trouble if it's not set up in the right way. But you're right. I understand that obviously a government organisation there needs to be some sort of inspirational vision that once kind of leads people to wanting to take it off and deliver it. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds very base when you talk about a financial reward, but you know, it, it, it does have a, I think a significant factor in, um, in driving um, these sort of programs where, where you're being rewarded. Um, but there are other type of rewards too. Oh, look, I don't have the answers. I just, I just, you know, after coming from the private sector and spending a lot of time in government, I, I do notice that there is a bit of distinction. And I don't think it's just the fact that one's private and one's, one's government. I I think it's, it is cultural. There is definitely cultural elements of, you know, an organization that's got strong values around, you know, driving and, and acting fast. Not suggest that government doesn't have those same cultural values, but I don't know. For me, I think the missing piece is, is senior leaders. Um, being rewarded for driving the program because there is an incentive for them to do so and you need those senior leaders to drive because if they're not driving it you can forget about it like you're just not going to get the buy-in all right people well, listen that's um really enjoyed that today thank you for your time and um the insights there that was uh yeah really enjoyable I'm sure you'd agree simon brilliant yeah